Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted to have as my guest this week, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, is a women's rights campaigner, free speech advocate, and the author of many books, including this one, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, which is available for pre-order right now. Ayan, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to see you in person. It is indeed, because we've only met over, over the internet, of course, through the, your podcast. For my podcast, and yes, virtually, and it's just wonderful uh, to see you in person. Well, I thought we should start by just giving some background to people who aren't familiar with you and your work. Um, and you've been twice an immigrant uh, from, uh, because you grew up in Somalia and uh, Nairobi, yeah. then went to uh, the Netherlands and then to America. So you are an immigrant success story. Uh, and yet people describe you sometimes as being anti-immigration. Perhaps you could give your side of this and explain where you've come from and why. So I've been an immigrant many times. Over. I left uh, Somalia when I was very little with my parents. We moved to Saudi Arabia. That's quite the immigration story. And in Saudi Arabia, as immigrants from Somalia, we had a terrible experience, uh, as do many immigrants from all over the world who go to Saudi Arabia. And we moved from there, or rather we were deported. Right and went to um, Ethiopia, and that was another, yet a different experience. Went to Kenya, another experience. That's where I learned to speak English. And then I went to the Netherlands and asked for asylum. So coming from the third world to the first world, this was in 1992, that was really quite, wow, different. Um, and am I right in thinking you went to the Netherlands to avoid a forced marriage, or was that part of, part uh, of your reason? It's not part of the reason, that was the main reason. Right. I, I was already forced into the marriage, but I saw this opportunity. My The man I was forced to marry lived in Canada, so I was supposed to join him in Canada, travel through Germany. Mm. My relatives in Germany would have helped me with the immigration process uh, to, be, to get into Canada as a legal immigrant. Yes. But instead of going to Canada, I took that opportunity to go to the Netherlands and ask for asylum. And that was then my own immigration story as opposed to what my parents and my clan desired for me. Yes. And I made a success of that. I say that with humility. I know how incredibly difficult it is. Uh, but it was a success also because of how I thought um, the Dutch were very welcoming and mm -hmm. generous. And I know that a lot of people think what I just said is odd. But my experience was that they were very, very welcoming. Uh, they were welcoming to me. And also, you, 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 know, you became a member of the Dutch parliament and you, you went into politics. I mean, this is, as I say, a success story in, in so many ways. Well, the people that I came into contact with in the Netherlands, and I, we hit it off. It, mm. it was love at first sight. <laughs> and, and, you know, I thrived there. And 10 years into my tenure, my residence, you know, I had actually become a citizen. And uh, some of the leaders in the social democratic side of politics said, well, can you please help us give the same sort of experience to everyone else who's been here for a generation yes. or longer? And so that's really, that's how I made my way into politics and in trying to answer that question. It's been so wonderful for me. How can I possibly help with that process. I mean, I get that sense from your book as well, is that, you know, so much of the work that you do is in fact pro-immigration because you, you, you would like to see immigrants flourish in their host countries and yes. you're concerned about the ways in which that isn't happening. But we'll, we'll, we'll get onto that in a bit because it's so important to, to what you've written. Uh, in terms then of uh, relocating to 
America. Uh, now, obviously, this this followed a horrific, the horrific murder of Theo van Gogh. Perhaps you could tell some people, because I'm sure not everyone is fully aware of what happened there. Perhaps uh, I should leave it to you to explain. So, on November the 2nd in 2004, Theo van Gogh, who worked with me on a film called Submission, was murdered um, in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Tuesday morning, early in the morning, he was on his way to work. And a man, uh, originally, I would say his heritage is from Morocco. Um, I'm not quite sure whether he was actually born in the Netherlands, but he definitely grew up in the Netherlands. Mm. And he became uh, radicalized. That's the word that's used now, but he became very devoted to his uh, faith, Islam. And um, his takeaway was that for the, uh, for the sin of blasphemy, uh, you have to face... Uh, the ultimate punishment, death, mm -hmm. and that he was going to carry it out himself. And that happened on the 2nd of November 2004. And uh, it was absolutely horrific. I have to say for Theo's son, family, for me, uh, for the wider community, Theo van Gogh had a lot of fans. He also had a lot of enemies, mm -hmm. but he had a lot of fans um, in the Netherlands. He just was really the individual who kept this concept of freedom of speech, the right to offend. Yes. He's the one who kept it going. Every time some complacency came over the country, he'd be the one to find some group to offend, some individual to yes. offend, some cause to offend. And when his life was brought to an end the way it was, for many people in Holland it was, but why? And there was someone who was asking the question, well, these people came from countries where they don't have freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of conscience. They're here now, we're giving them all of these things. Why do they think it's right to kill people for mm. what they think? And I think that really is the key question. Yes, it's a question of cultural differences and how we, how we address those differences. And we first do so by acknowledging yeah. them, I suppose. And of course, in the wake of that, you were subject to threats yourself, and uh, eventually that, I, I, that precipitated your move to America. Is that the well? Best way I think to put it? Um, the the threats then from individuals who identified as Muslim and who actually wanted to follow the letter of the Quran and the Sharia law to, you know, in in such great detail, their anger and the fact that they were offended and that they wanted to hurt me uh, shocked me. But it didn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise anyone because obviously as devoted, 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 radical Muslim. That's what's expected of you. Yes. What shocked me, and ultimately I would say what drove me out of the Netherlands, was the um, preparedness for a large number of people to accommodate that. Mm. To say, well, in that case, you know, you, Ayan, and Theo van Gogh, and the others who are asking these questions, you are provoking this minority. You're driving them to murderous rage. So maybe it's better if you just get out of the way. And so ultimately, when it became very clear to me that the political elite, academic elite, media elite, had sort of reached this consensus, and the Netherlands is a consensus country, mm -hmm. um, it was easier for me to say, in that case, I don't think I can serve anymore. Mm. And I don't want to be self-serving, and so maybe it's best if I just make my exit. And I agreed with some of the 
people at the top levels of government at that point that that was the healthiest way to do things. Why does that keep happening? Because I keep seeing this again and again with the Charlie Hebdo attacks, for instance, yeah. where, uh, where with the Salman Rushdie satanic verses controversy. And again and again, when these things happen and we see the, the, these threats and often acts of violence from uh, obviously a very small group of, of Islamist extremists, people in the media and politicians continually say, well, you know, perhaps you shouldn't be offensive to a religion and that, that it keeps happening. Yeah. Whereas, of course, if you believe in that foundational principle of liberal democracy, freedom of speech, that includes the freedom to offend and critique. Why is it that European governments uh, across, the, across the continent are failing to, to uphold that principle? So we're talking with my experience, we're talking about 2003, 2004, 2005. That's quite a bit you know, of time yes. in between. And I think back then, uh, in all of these conversations, over lunch, over dinner, in meeting rooms, in boardrooms, what are the trade-offs? I think the people, the voices who were saying, give the minority time. Yes. And over time, they're going to adapt. Our values are going to prevail. These values of the freedom of speech, association, conscience, you name it, these values are timeless. And it's just that... You know, the Moroccan community, uh, the Muslim community from Turkey, the Muslim community from Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, just give them time. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, it happened for you, Ayan, but you, you have your foot on the accelerator in a way that's unhealthy. These social changes take time. That was the argument. I see. And so now, reflecting what a decade and a half later, it's to say, so how far are we with that argument? Yes. Because that's been implemented. Are things better? But that's my point, is that I yes. don't think things are changing. And I think now is a time to go back. And it's, this is why it's so wonderful to have these conversations, to go back to exactly those same voices uh, in the Dutch leadership, but also in the French, the British, the German, everywhere in Europe, and to say, well, it's a decade and a half later. Yes. And actually, it looks like the problem is only worse yes. for a number of reasons. But it is worse. And I don't want to say, oh, I was right. I still think the, uh, you know, uh, the factor time yes. is very important. You should give people time to adjust and adapt. But that's not all. You also have to be very um, explicit about what exactly it is that you want them to adapt to. And I think that European leaders have failed in that. Well, that brings us on very well to your new book, Prey, because this offer, offers a very specific example of what you're talking about, of, of the European government's failure to address an issue, to brush it under the carpet in a way. Uh, and it's a very brave book because, and, and very rigorously researched. I highly recommend it because I, to anyone watching, because I think it is it's, a, it's an important issue that people do feel uncomfortable, and understandably so. I understand why people feel uncomfortable yeah. talking about this. Um, and you say in the book, you say, only by clarifying what has gone wrong in Europe in recent years can one make a truly credible case for effective integration of immigrants. So you're not, anti, you're not making an anti-immigrant argument in this book. It's no. quite the reverse. It's quite the reverse. And if we carry on that thread with freedom of speech, when we were having these discussions, arguments, exchanges, and sometimes quarrels, the argument was, okay, so now give a freedom of speech time. You don't mm. have to provoke them. You don't have to... If, if people are provoked by an expression of um, speech in a painting, in um, a, a documentary, in a movie... Um, 
any you know, just let's not do it. It's not worth it. The cartoons, I don't know how old you are when all this cartoon stuff was happening. And so it was, I felt that my back was against a wall mm. when it was just speech versus people so offended and enraged that they were willing to take the life of someone else. Yes. And so in that sense, actually, the people who are saying, oh, come on, let it be, they, I, I felt that uh, I, didn't, I didn't know what else to bring in there. Yeah. But sometimes we would talk about, but what about the rights of women? And there were women within those communities, Muslim communities, mm. whose rights were compromised. They were forced into a marriage. Their genitals were cut. Their, um, they were kidnapped from the country and taken to the country of origin. And all sorts of terrible things were done to them. And when we had those conversations, it was... It went suddenly from life and death matter because these girls were being subjected to honor killings or yes. the threat of honor killings to it's a minority thing, you know, let's give it. And that time thing kept coming. And at some point behind closed doors, people would say to me, things would be different if the same thing or similar things, the compromising of the rights of women would happen to all women, especially to these native white women who had fought for this stuff mm -hmm. and won these fights. And when I look at the subject of prey, that's exactly what's happening. Women are being attacked in the open. So that's and the difference now, is that? That the is the difference. And so you can't wish this thing away. You can't sweep it under the carpet. You can't just keep saying, oh, time, come save well, me. People have attempted to sweep it under the carpet, though. I mean, oh, yeah. If, I mean, if, it's it, it's relentless, This the attempts to sweep it under the carpet. But it's not going, if anything, it's getting worse. So if we take for the, one of the examples that you give, which is a, an example that most people will be familiar with, is Cologne, New Year's Eve in 2015. Yes. Yeah. And this is uh, predominantly Muslim um, gangs, groups, they were gangs, they were in literally uh, uh, groups attacking women um, and the police covered it up, were forced to admit that there had been a cover-up. When that occurred, they had said that it had been, uh, I think they used the phrase, largely peaceful event. So and I think to be fair to the police, because I talked to a lot of people mm. in law enforcement, they did not, the police did not want to cover anything up. The right. police uh, and, the, and the, the leaders within the police that I spoke to were saying, we don't want to cover anything up. We, want, we just want to do our jobs. Yes. But it's their bosses in politics who say, stop, uh, don't follow on this, don't call it this, don't, and yes. they, you just get law enforcement with its hands tied behind That's their backs. That's a very fair distinction to make because I, I note that the, the, the police chief officer was dismissed yeah. at, at, at that time, but it wasn't really just, I, I, I completely accept that point, so it's come from the authorities, but in addition it's also the media, and oh, also, yes. I mean, some of the victims of the yeah. attacks were were called racist yeah. for describe for pointing out that the people looked North African or Moroccan, which which is what you do when you're attacked. You describe the perpetrator. So there is in within media there is this sort of code of conduct that's being pushed down the throats of reporters and journalists who are saying, "Wait a second! I thought my job was simply to report what's happening," and and they get again senior leadership who are in contact with politicians who are saying, "Wait a second, um, yes." you've got to report what's happening, but there are a few details that you need to leave out. Right. Because if you leave these details out, then you give, again, the process of integration time, but if you actually um, 
report on these details, you will end up empowering the wrong people, and the wrong people are far-right, extreme-right, skinheads, genocide-seeking white people who, at any given moment, will erupt into violence. So in order to preserve social cohesion, journalists, reporters, the police, social workers, all of these professionals are told, this is the only way that we can address this issue. But then the more you reflect on that, the yes. more you just get back to, let's sweep everything under the carpet. This is such a key point about your book, is that a lot of this is well-intentioned. And, and that makes it really hard to deal with. I mean, yeah. to give a, another example was the, um, the, event, the Swedish police admitted to a cover-up in, in the wake of the Cologne event, this at a summer festival. And you, you write about these, these mass sexual assaults, mostly Afghan and, and Moroccan asylum seekers. The police hid the uh, information that there had been 38 sexual offences on girls as young as 14. And when they were asked about why they covered it up, and they did admit to this, mm -hmm. when they asked about it, they said they didn't want to provoke racism or to play into the hands of the Swedish Democrats, the, the um, right-wing populist party. So it is a, it's almost as though the, the public cannot be trusted with the truth, yeah. right? Which, as I say, is a well-intentioned thing. But could you maybe talk through why you think that is so misguided? Well, I can share with you what I observe, which I sometimes think these people who come up with these schemes, they live on a different planet from the public. The public, as mm. you know, age of pandemic, we've just been having all these to's and fro's about which country to go on vacation, which not, and when and how. Yes. The public in Europe, and particularly in Northern Europe, they know precisely what goes on in countries like Turkey, Morocco, Egypt, they go to Muslim countries to vacation all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're a female and you're white and you're from Northern Europe, you know exactly what you can and can't do and why. Yes. You know that there are cultural differences. You are told you can't go there in your tank top and shorts. You've got to dress differently. And here are the places. And, and when men hit on you, this is how you ought to, et cetera, et cetera. So when you get large numbers of men from those countries, uh, who come and uh, ask for asylum and try to make their homes in Europe. And these men continue to behave on European ground exactly the way that they were behaving back home. Mm -hmm. You, who live on the elite planet, you think you can now tell the public, oh, and by the way, we're going to try and keep this very open secret. Yes. <laughs> and this very open secret that it's so open, it's on social media. It's everywhere. It's on uh, Lonely. I used to, you know, I'm old enough to be the one who used to use Lonely Planets and things like that. <laughs> but this is a very open um, piece of information. And I, like I said, I don't want to explain it. I just want to share with you the observation. Where on earth does this come from? Well, who, who do they think the public are? They think the, the, the public don't have access to the internet sometimes. I think just in the digital age, you can't necessarily control the narrative yeah. in the way that you think. I mean, it's, but it's not just the digital. It, it was there before the digital age. Yes. There were women from the West who fell in love and married men from the Middle East and other Muslim countries. Women from the West who traveled out there. They report, there are novels, there are movies. There's, the general public is informed yes. about the cultural differences. It's not, oh my gosh, this is something that the elite top-down is going to hide from so them. Let, let's talk so about that's it. that's just one of the things that I'm observing, and uh, I, you, know, you might as well try to explain it as I may, but it's, yeah. Well, I, I think the, one of the objections would be, you know, it, it, that you are at risk of, of demonizing and saying that these cultures are particularly susceptible to misogyny and that kind of thing. You say in the book, 
uh, that growing up uh, in Nairobi, in Mogadishu, you said that um, living in, in these countries involves, as a woman, shrinking from men, being on guard, avoiding drawing attention to oneself, and that this is a reality. Yeah. Uh, so, so are you nervous, though, that people would, will accuse you of, of cultural stereotyping or, or, or you know, demonizing a certain group of people? No, I'm not afraid of that, because my relationship with the general public, individuals I meet of every station of life, is to say, oh my gosh, this is different. And there's a very commonsensical reaction to context. Yes. If you are in a certain part of London, you know how to behave, you know what to do, how to survive and how to thrive. Yes. And if you decide you're going to go to a different country where that is the way to live, the unwritten code as a woman is to shy away, to look away, not to provoke men, just sort of erase yourself. Yes. You also do that. So I don't I don't have that I don't have the problem of everything that comes out of my mouth, everything I do is going to empower the far right. I also have to admit, I don't think I've ever really met anyone from the far right. Right. And so I've never been in a context where, you know, the far right, whoever they are, are strategizing. I need a lot of education on that. Yes. Um, but there is a sense for me yes. that it's a bit of a boogeyman. It's a, it's a bit of a... Uh, you know, whatever, when it comes to the subjects of immigration, Islam, integration, mm. women's rights, freedom of speech, uh, if you take on, in my view, a commonsensical perspective, you're shut down because anything that has to do with common sense is going to empower the far right. And I think maybe it's now time that we just explore. That's really interesting, though, because you, you, you take such pains in the book to make the point that actually you're concerned about empowering the far right and, and that you, you're not, you're not uh, dismissing that argument. But at the same time, like you've just said, I mean, actually, I mean, I don't know anyone from the far right either. I've known, you know, they are a very small margin. I'm not saying they're not dangerous. They're, you know, absolutely they are, but there are not many of them. And in that, in that respect, but it's good that you address the concern, but how concerned ought, ought we be? Well, that? I do address it, and then I've pursued, I've spoken to many different people uh, whom I really respect mm. and who know very much about the history of Europe, the history of the United States, the history of the far right. And obviously, we always, always go back to the 1920s and the 1930s, and what is it that led to the factors of the Second World War and segregation in the United States, uh, these convictions that people had about race and they had about uh, different groups of people to the point that, you know, the Holocaust was possible. So it's not a joke, mm -hmm. but the question for me now is, in, we're now entering the 2020s. Um, are the 2020s different from the 1920s when it comes to the far right threat? Yes. Is it is it as palpable? Is it really that? Is this this sword that's just hanging over your head? Mm -hmm. And there's no one I've met who says that is the case. Okay, it isn't. The, the 2020s. 100 years later from the 1920s are very different. Yes. So then, when it, I mean, that is, as you say, the spectre that it often appears whenever you try to discuss the, these cultural differences that you're drawing attention to, the, this idea of empowering this group, which are probably very small, but nonetheless dangerous and unpleasant. Um, but it's not that controversial what you're saying about these cultural differences. They are recognized both within the cultures and, and without of the cultures. This isn't something that you've just con concocted. Mm -hmm. And what... 
One of the, the criticisms that feminists often get is that they don't seem to care about this element. Do you, do you think they don't, they're not aware of it or they, they want to pretend that... Because you, you make the distinction, I think, in the book, you talk about how in, so, in some of these Muslim-majority countries, women are treated as commodities, not just devalued. I mean, in fact, you make the very, very clear point yeah. that misogyny is everywhere. Yeah. You, you, say, you say that there's no country or cultural society without misogyny. You're not trying to say yeah. it's just a singularly North African, Middle Eastern thing. <laughs> you know, but, but what you're saying is... Yeah. built into the culture and built into the religion, yeah. there is this commodification of women. So to be very black and white about it, mm -hmm. um, misogyny in countries um, like where I come from, it's still in the law. Okay. <laughs> right? It's, yes. Um, there are places in uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, the UAE, all of it, like this is what's the law requires a woman to do, and here are the constraints, and these are constraints that are not faced by men. Yes. And so misogyny is not just something you talk about. It's real. Uh, yes, because you talk about the Me Too movement hasn't crossed No, it hasn't barriers. crossed that. It, and so, but there is, the point I want to make is there is a difference between societies, like uh, British society, American society, where, in fact, all of these legal constraints, you know, cultural constraints, um, they've been eliminated as much as possible. So if there is a man out there who thinks that women are nothing, well, that's, that's there. Yes. But he's not getting backing from the law, from the constitution, right. from the bureaucracy and other existing institutions. It, let's acknowledge that difference. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, something that feminists have acquired and have gotten used to in the West. And I think they do make a mistake, Western feminists, in assuming that men, just because they come from somewhere else where that's not the case, they come here, it's all just going to rub off on them. Right. So there is that element of complacency. Yes. But there's also an element of who are we to tell we white people who are guilty of colonization, slavery, and all sorts of other terrible things, who are we to tell these men how to behave. So it's, it's a kind of cultural relativism going on here. There's a cultural relativism that's going on with feminists and I think a number of feminists just because they're white. Yes. They think that they are part and parcel and, you know, beneficiaries of uh, of white supremacy, mm -hmm. structural white. We'll get into that nonsense, yeah. but that's how they feel or, or what they express. And then there's, I think, a class element that we cannot overlook that I noticed while I was doing the research for the book. Um, that uh, children, I'm thinking about the grooming gangs here, yes. little white girls from working class communities uh, do not have the same, they can't take the same protections, cultural protections for granted mm -hmm. that the middle class girls take. And so feminism, as you read it in the papers, as you see it on television, as it manifests itself in social media, is not the kind of feminism that's protecting these Working, uh, working class groups, as yes. it was not protecting uh, immigrant women within those minority communities. So I think uh, the class factor is a very interesting one. It's a very big one, too. I've uh, been familiarized in the last few years with the phrase white trash. Yes. Trailer trash. Um, Hillary Clinton spoke of buckets of deplorables. Yes. So I think that's something, uh, that's a thing. 
I think it's definitely there at the, at the heart of what we call the woke movement, the, the critical social justice movement, which comes from predominantly middle class activists or middle class, a middle class mindset. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting that you mentioned the the grooming gang scandal. I mean, if we can, if we look at the the, the height of the Me Too scandal where there were whole articles about, about yeah. powerful women who'd had a hand on the knee and that kind of thing. But, but there was a, there was a cover-up of, of these working-class girls. And, and it's, I mean, Sarah Champion, the example you give in the book yeah. of the Labour MP who was asked to step down from the shadow cabinet for simply raising these issues. The yeah. feminist writer Julie Bindle attempting to get her work published on this and being turned away again and again by newspaper editors saying, no, you will be accused of racism or xenophobia. Now, how do we deal with that? Because there is a legitimate point here in that there are people out there who will attack people who are identifiably Muslim. They will vandalize mosques, this kind of thing. That kind of behavior is a thing. It does go on. Yeah. And so are we not right to be concerned about exacerbating that? We are. We also, and we should be concerned with being precise in our language. So I don't think there is a cover up. Okay. Because a cover-up, I think, constitutes some kind of conspiracy getting together and saying, yes. well, here's how we want things I to be. I suppose a better phrase would be a, a, a lack of transparency around the truth or a, a failure to report when it could have helped, I suppose. Or a cowardice. Okay. People are being cowardly. I also think that there is a sense of maybe guilt, shame, whatever you call it, towards immigrants and minorities. And yes. And that, but also towards working class and the way they've been abandoned. So again, all well-intentioned. It's well-intentioned, but it is, in the end, what was the expression, uh, the path to hell, the way to hell was paved with good, good intentions. intentions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the good intentions are cynical in the sense that they only seem to benefit those people who are virtue signaling. You, you know, you've done a fantastic job in in writing this yourself. Uh, and marking it, the mm -hmm. Titania McGrath book, I think, tells that story of, you know, what is the point of saying I'm really over the moon about uh, social justice when that really only reflects on how you feel about yourself? Yes, and that's it doesn't have a tangible good. effect. It doesn't have a tangible effect. Yeah, yeah. You're not really, you're not really sacrificing anything. And whatever it is that you virtue signal, it just, it's something that benefit makes you look good. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. Without changing and, and actually really uh, victimizing the, the groups. Um, and the individuals yeah. who find themselves in bad spots because you're withholding resources. And, and the reason why I say you're withholding resources is you're not allowing the conversation to go to a place yes. to improve the conditions of the poor people, the underprivileged people, the oppressed people, because it's all about you. And I, it's one reason why I'm uh, incensed, angry, enraged by the woke is it's all about them. Yes. It's very narcissistic. I want us to talk about people who are in true poverty and get very quickly to the question, mm. well, what is it that we can do about that? Uh, what are the required resources, the required time, the patience, the learning? But they'll never let you go there. Mm. It's all about just having to you know, put out your little banner and say, uh, look at me, look at me, I care about these things. Yes. A and then moving on to the next tweet, moving on to the next whatever it is that uh, well, uh, they complain about. It's it's really not about the causes. I mean, it's all very well, isn't it, saying that you, you, you care about human rights and, and, and putting your the Twitter bio and putting your posts out on Twitter to, to say that. But then when you see examples of women 
being abused yeah. and not actually doing it and not just not doing anything about it, making excuses yeah. for the perpetrators. I mean, isn't that, isn't that, and that to me is something that's very shocking, the way in which women's rights yeah. seems to be a casualty yes. of the woke movement. And cultural relativism and multiculturalism and this whole narrative of cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism and globalization. Look, I benefited from globalization and cosmopolitanism, so I shouldn't be one to be talking. But I have to say to you, if you do have a conversation about, well, uh, you know, a young woman walks in and says, my goodness, this is what just happened to me. Mm. And you get a description of how she was terrorized by a group of young men calling after her, following her, menacing her, groping her, surrounding her. And this story is not told by one young woman, but it's told by another and another and another. Mm -hmm. And you see there is a change happening in the village you are in, the town you are in, because a new group of people who ha have come in, yes. they look different, they don't speak your language, and they, suddenly you go from being completely unaware of your gender to, oh my goodness, what is it that I'm, I am doing mm. that is provoking this behavior? And over and over again, you're told you're not welcoming enough. You're displaying signs of xenophobia. You are racist. And you, but again, you describe, I can't get out of my house without having to contend with this threatening behavior. And it has nothing to do with anything else other than that I'm female. What should I do? Yes. And I've recorded in the book authorities and voices, spokespeople for authorities who are saying, dress differently, wear different types of shoes, don't go out at night. So in other words, take the exact same precautions that I used to take when I was a young girl living in Somalia and in Kenya and in Ethiopia and Saudi Arabia, because women who live in that part of the world, they, they know no different. This is how we, we were raised avoid men yes. and where they go to. and But when you're in Germany, in Sweden, in the UK, and, and the advice you're getting is so, don't provoke it. So in other words, blame the victim. In, a, in other words, don't don't seek uh, a, a way in which we can have discussions about integration and how we, how we manage that. Yeah. Instead, uh, adopt uh, ideas that are normalized in the countries where you come from. And, and that, yeah. I mean, you've even got in Germany, you mention it in the book, the... Um, the, uh, it was the equivalent of a chastity belt. Women, uh, someone invented safe shorts. Yes. And, and it was a, 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 a an anti-rape underwear. Anti-rape underwear, anti-rape bracelets. I think there's a company in the Netherlands that says you have a bracelet that's supposed to evoke, uh, emit this in the same scent as that of a skunk. Yes. As if you think you, that's how to put these men off. But it's also very confusing to these young European women mm. who are told, um, you know, your body is sacred, a bodily integrity. You are in every way just as powerful, if not powerful, um, than your male counterparts. You have to speak up for yourself. You can aspire to and dream about these positions of leadership. Oh, but wait a second. Uh, yes. Actually, when I'm leaving my front door, uh, suddenly I'm told my body is the problem. Yes. My scent is the problem. And my attire is the problem. Uh, and so th these, these young women have to deal with that confusion that so if they want to be welcoming citizens uh, of Europe. Yes if they want uh, to be anti-racist, if they want to be open-minded and um, brave enough to take on the world, mm. 
then they should go out and do it, and they're encouraged to do so. And then the minute they're confronted with these unintended consequences, in my view, of immigration and globalization, then they are told, oh, come on. Right. Off it. So it's mixed messaging. And it, it, I mean, it's, I mean, it, we have to be very clear about where you're coming from here because you, you, you do it so beautifully in the book. And you, you know, you're very clear that you're not interested in, in empowering the far right. In fact, you're nervous about, about that. You're not trying to stereotype any particular type of person or culture. Or, what you're saying is that, and you're not saying that men, uh, is, uh, Muslim men are particularly violent or particularly prone to... Not particularly. You, you, you're saying that there is a cultural uh, uh, view of women which is deeply embedded into that culture. And when there is migration to a certain scale, mm -hmm. it is inevitable yeah. that, that, that traces of those cultural attitudes and, as you show, yeah. the evidence is there. It's not something that you've just made up. It's Absolutely, it's absolutely. And if it comes, look, when it comes, if all male, all men, let's assume, have mm -hmm. something in them towards women, which is, well, you know, you're physically stronger. And so anywhere in the world, you will find men who want to exploit that physical strength yes. uh, to do things um, that are wrong and do wrong things to women. And sometimes they do it as individuals, sometimes they do it as groups. Yes. With many Muslim men, if they want to invoke their religion, it gives them an excuse. That excuse has been taken away from the Western man. It's been taken away if they wanted to invoke Christian uh, excuses, Christian reasons for doing that, that's been taken away from them. If they want to do it, uh, Jewish reasons for doing that, that's been taken away from them. If they want to do it simply by saying, well, I just happen to be stronger than you are, that has been taken away from them because the law is that if you do that, you will go to a prison. Mm. So there truly is a cultural difference and it's deep and it's and it's there and it's it's real there are the men who think from a cultural perspective religious perspective they can get away what other men can't get away with so the question then isn't necessarily about limiting migration is it more about uh, the way that we we Edu educate people or, or, or create a scenario where people are integrated. That's absolutely why it's not really about, obviously up to a degree, it is about immigration because numbers matter. Right. You have to select uh, who do you let in and, and who do you leave out. Yes. So I don't want to say immigration is unimportant, but I think immigration is a topic on its own. Yes. And I try to touch on it in the book. But ultimately it is about integration that's the term that's used in Europe. Assimilation is a term that's used in the United States. Yes. Uh, but it is uh, to, to demand that, okay, uh, young men coming from places where misogyny is excused mm. or even enshrined in law, when you come here, it's different and you have to abide by the values of here the laws, the norms. If you don't, there'll be consequences. And those consequences have to mean something because they're enforced. And that is, I think, where, where we are. That's where we need to take the conversation. But, but if you are a cultural relativist, as so many of the critical social justice group are, mm -hmm. then what they would say is what you're doing in that is you're, you're saying that one culture is better than another and it's a kind of supremacist idea. And they would say, therefore, that even the concept of integration or assimilation, whichever you want to call it, uh, is in a sense a form of racism. Well, as a woman, I'm saying exactly that. Yes, one culture is better than another. Some cultures are better than others. Some are superior. The culture that 
constrains the misogyny of men is better and superior to the culture that enshrines it in law and in, in its norms and in its customs or excuses it. I'm saying, I'm sitting here yeah. saying that, and, and it's not only a fact, but it's also on my side a wish. I wish, I dream, I hope, uh, and I want to advance a campaign to get those men to become like these men. Yes. It takes quite a lot of courage to make that statement, though, because people get very It doesn't take angry. any kind of courage. It just takes pure common sense and mm. clarity of mind. I think here's where the feminists are failing their constituents if, if, in fact, there is such a thing. It's to recognize the differences, what it really means to be a woman in a world where men are physically stronger. Mm. And if that physical strength is not somehow... Um, you know, I go back again to constraints, but it's not to, you know, take away men's freedoms. Sure. It's just... An acknowledgement of the, the Acknowledgement, yeah, that there are actually men who will abuse that physical strength, but you have to put roadblocks yes. on that. That culture is so much better. And what about homosexuals? Uh, uh, the country I come from, various countries that I have lived in, um, it is... Uh, you know, you'll be put to death. Mm. Uh, if not by the government, you'll be put to death by your own family and your extended family and, and, and you're treated like a freak. But this is what I find so confusing about the, the people who call themselves on the left and the people who claim to be about social justice. Yeah. When they uh, make the claims that they're making about cultural relativism and the importance of not imposing one value system onto another, they're effectively siding with the most reactionary elements of that culture because they're not helping gay people within Islamic countries. They're not helping women. They're, they're, they're siding with the more powerful body. So that, that to me seems like a contradiction. And they're not helping the poor and they're not helping the deprived and the oppressed because it's about themselves. That's what it keeps going back to. Mm. They, are really, they want either to use the um, vulnerable positions of the people who are in trouble to gain power, mm. so for them it's only about power, or it's very narcissistic, it's very much about self-fulfillment and navel-gazing, it's, oh, look at me, I care about these things, but you don't care that anything happens. Because if you happened. actually cared, you would allow the conversation to go to the place where it should. And that is the question then, what What should we do? What, what are the steps that we need to take that will improve the positions of these people? And those are the people I think that should read your book the most, but almost certainly won't. You know, insofar as because what you've presented is it's it, the, the research is so rigorous and, and incontrovertible. It's been presented, it, you know, you've, you've, you're thorough and it's presented in an accessible way. And, you know, and I, I wanted to mention a specific case to, to exemplify this cultural difference. And I don't want to imply that this is an anecdotal one off thing because you give so many examples. But it's the case of uh, Hussein Kavari, yes. who, who, who murdered uh, Maria Lardenberger, who's, who was a medical student, 19 year old medical student. Now, he arrived in Germany claimed to be a child from Afghanistan, was housed with the German family, and then he went to school as a minor. Uh, then after he'd raped and drowned Maria Lardenberger, it was discovered he was in his 20s. He was probably from Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the key thing about this case is his behavior in court, is the fact that when he was uh, asked about pushing a woman off a cliff, and you've quoted it in the book, his response was, but that's just a woman. Yeah. Now, in his mind, it wasn't even immoral 
that he'd raped and killed this this woman. It, it was, and you could say, well, that's just a one-off. But you give so many examples and so many statistics that there is something that within these this cultural practice that believes it is actually a moral duty to be abusive to women. That that's not a moral. That's not that is a good. When I was growing, when I was a child in Somalia, among my Somali relatives, and it goes on with in the diaspora when Somalis in Ethiopia, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, I used to hear that phrase all the time. Which phrase in particular? Just that it's for you. It's just a woman. It's just a woman. It's just a woman. Like, what's the big deal? It's just a woman. So it would be um, a sister or a cousin or a wife Mm. or a mother, uh, a woman who would be. Um, expressing despair and pain Mm. and it was always dismissed by some of the men in the room as I don't understand what the whole big deal is but it's just a woman and to the husband who's complaining oh my wife is giving me a hard time we'll just take another wife what are you on about see that I'm so used to that and I remember this when I was in Kenya and exposed mm. to different people from different cultures. It went on like this. The Kenyans, the Pakistanis in my class, uh, men from Yemen, they were all absolutely didn't understand what the big deal was about. And that picture of that man confronted with German law and he's being asked and you can you can see his lawyer but also the other mm. members of the they want him to express some form of remorse yes. guilt regret he doesn't have it he doesn't understand them he thinks they're mad they think he's mad that's that's a collision of values it's a collision of world views you've got to wake up to that Yes, because, I mean, a number of the anecdotes you mentioned but really shocked me. I mean, you, you talk about the Egyptian lawyer yeah. in 2017 who, who said on television, when a girl dresses immodestly, it is a patriotic duty to sexually harass her and a national duty to rape her. And again, now he was prosecuted for that. But, but, yeah. again, but, but you're saying that there is a, this points to a broader trend and a broader attitude. But can you understand, I mean, you know, I don't know any Muslims who would think this was anything other than ab- abhorrent. Yeah. Pe- Muslim people in this country, the people that we know yeah. who are Muslim the, the, in this country, we, that's an unrecognizable the Muslim men, The Muslim men I spoke to for the book in mm. Sweden, in Germany, um, in, the, in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, when we have this conversation, these Muslim men who are protective of women, they're Muslim, they identify as Muslim, mm-hmm. they're devoted, they're practicing Muslims, they are protective of women. They are ashamed of the behavior of other men who identify as Muslim and then use that as an excuse to treat women badly. These men say that they are dismissed as being westernized. So even within their own communities, it's a culture is thrown at them. Right. So a man who's kind and, you know, really, really good to... Um, And when I mean good, I mean allows women to be as free as they possibly can be. He is told, but you know, you've become too British or too French or too German. You're you're not one of us anymore. So what what is the extent of this problem? Because people will say to you, well, you know, that Muslims in this country by and large would would find this terrible behavior. But you're saying it's more more common than we would like to admit, I suppose. 
Yeah, and I'm actually not having any problems talking to Muslims, whether they are men or women, about this problem and what to do about it. Mm -hmm. I'm having problem talking to white people who are in positions of leadership who, when they spoke to me for the book, said, well, please just don't put my name down. Right. I could be fired from my job. So there's an acknowledgement within the Muslim community that this is a problem. Yes, absolutely. There is an acknowledgement within the Muslim community that there is such a thing as westernization or becoming British or French or whatever. is that there's an acknowledgement that they're dealing with two different cultures and even more explicitly there's an acknowledgement where a lot of my Muslim acquaintances friends are saying that's why I left my country of origin to begin with I came here I was in search of this type of stability freedom equality I, I, I was in pursuit of these values and when I come here I'm made to feel excluded by my own community because they're saying you're not one of us you're so weird you're just becoming like them Mm. and they are telling me you're so weird you're different you're saying things that i can't see you sound racist and far right yes and uh, it strikes me though that there doesn't seem much of an appetite to well firstly we've talked about acknowledging these issues um but but seeing how they're actually making matters worse i mean another example that you mentioned is the um the case in normandy of a Bangladeshi refugee who was given a sen- suspended yeah. sentence for yeah. raping a 15-year-old girl, second offence. And then you quote the experts in court who make the point that but he was influenced by his culture. Yeah. And that's why he has this, that's why he's raping children, because he, because of that. Yeah. So in other words, the cultural differences are often used as a def- as a defence as well. So they are acknowledged and, and yet not acknowledged. Yeah. There is an infrastructure of defence lawyers and other experts who... Um, find all sorts of grey areas and loopholes within either um, the philosophy of law to get the, um, you know, the defendants uh, out of trouble mm-hmm. or minimise their sentences. Um, but there's also a cynical group there who come in as experts and say, in the case of that young man, you couldn't possibly send this man to prison because given his context and his background, yes, that's the acknowledgement. They acknowledge we have a cultural problem here that has shaped this man to do what he has done and he has no idea that what he has done is wrong. But then on the other side, those very same people, those very same voices are the ones to say all cultures are equal and you, you should ha- make no references to culture Exactly, whatsoever. that's what I mean. The contradiction there seems yeah. incredible. You're, yeah. you're, 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 you're at once suggesting that someone is a product of their culture and has no agency. Yeah. And at the same, on the same side, you're denying yeah. any kind of difference at all. And I think we have got to out these people because right. they only, again, they're in it only for themselves. It's not really that they're helping this young man because he's going to end up in prison. If he doesn't end up in prison for this particular crime, he's going to end up in prison for a different crime because he will keep on doing things thinking, I can get away with it. I I, I mean, I I don't normally like to look into people's minds, but it does strike me so obviously cynical. It's so cynical. Because it's it's also not helping any future victims that will come out of... I mean, in that case, as you mentioned, I almost couldn't believe this when I read it. In that that case, you said that a police officer had to stand between the defendant and his interpreter because in the court itself he kept trying to grope her thighs. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he's demonstrating the very behaviour he's being accused of in court. In court, yeah. So he clearly doesn't have any sense that this could be <laughs> could be considered wrong. 
No, I, when I was an interpreter, I translated for a man who kept saying to me in Somali, so I'm translating for him from Somali and then to the judges in uh, Dutch. Yes. And there was a Dutch female uh, member of the panel of, we don't have a jury system in the Netherlands, it, it's judges. Right. A female. And he kept on saying the worst things that you can say to me. As in misogynistic. In Somali, thing. very misogynistic, this, you know, just really terrible words. And I couldn't translate it because I was so embarrassed. I was literally melting with embarrassment. And the prosecutor said, you've got to translate every word that's said. And did you? I did. I had to. With shame looking down my eyes yes. and saying, this is what he's calling the judge. And that's how open he was about it. So that, that leads to another interesting point, is that, that, that um, is it the case, would you say, that for a proportion of, of, of migrants who have come from these cultures and are, and are still uh, steeped, in, steeped that. in that culture, yeah. that they have a disregard for Western police, Western authority? Uh, you, you make the argument in the book that because the punishments are so lenient, you know, in, 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 in North Africa, if, if, if you fall afoul of the police, you might be beaten and <laughs> all yes, sorts yes. of... Yes, there are different ways of making... There are deterrents that we don't want here in, in the civilised world, yes. And, and that means that when they get a, even a suspended sentence, you describe that as effectively a green light to continue with bad behaviour. Yes, absolutely. So I think one thing is to acknowledge these individuals and the fact that they're steeped in this stuff... Mm. And, uh, make, and, and wake them up to the fact that, wait a second, you are now in a completely different place. And if you carry on, I mean, people having attitudes and beliefs, I'm a liberal, I think you can believe whatever you want, whatever's between your ears is between your ears, yes. and I have nothing to do with it. But the minute you take an attitude to behavior, and now we're talking about something different, there has to be consequences, they have to be told, wait a second, something is going to happen here. And it's not going to be in your interest. And the thing that I think would make the most impression on this type of individual is to say, you are going to go back to your country of origin mm -hmm. and we are going to make it happen. Right. And this is not far right. It's not uh, extreme right. It's not all of these labels. It is a way of conveying the message. This is the kind of deterrence that makes sense, not the deterrence that is in the country of origin. So if I know uh, of my clan, uh, and if I had behaved according to the code of my clan, as expected, but regardless of that, I'm attacked, my attacker is going to be murdered in a gruesome way. So I don't think we should be proposing that. I don't think we should be importing those types of punishments here. So again, hold hold to our values in, term, to in our terms values. of the judicial system as well, and, and absolutely. But to make sh but then you have to come up as a liberal society with a method of deterring crime that makes sense to the individuals who are about to or who mm. are considering committing that crime. So a lot of these men don't think that attacking a woman constitutes a crime. They just don't think. So, it yeah, but that's the key, isn't it? How do we? Well, first, it takes an acknowledgement, doesn't it, of, 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 well, you see, people would accuse it of cultural superiority, but, but couldn't we find a way that we all agree? We all agree, don't we? But we agree that, that it is culturally superior, don't we? Well, we agree that surely uh, um, subjugating women, uh, keeping, uh, taking away women's rights is worse. Yeah, than, I, don't, than I actually don't need a lot of, it is culturally superior. 
Uh, that's my point. Is how do yeah. you phrase that in such a way that everyone it is can superior? Agree? It's just simply superior. To and, and women's I don't, rights rather than attack them. Uh, to protect women's rights, yes. Yeah. Cultures that protect the rights of women are superior to cultures that don't. And given that we can all agree on that, yeah, then you, know, you take it from there. Then you take yeah. it from there. Then how do you then? I'm saying on a very well. Then you are coming. You, the the young man who is about to abuse women, you are coming from a culture where you say, and that is what's happening in these court cases. The Bangladeshi guy is an example who says, "I had no idea I was committing a crime." Yes. I thought everybody did that. So then you obviously have yeah. to enlighten this individual and say, "Wait a second. Not only that. If you do it." You'll be on a one-way ticket back to Bangladesh. This, this is why I'm struggling because I, I fail to see how anyone could disagree with that premise. Is that is that we you know we asserting well, women's rights? I know how is how they can disagree with it because then you get into the next level, which is the bureaucratic level, which is uh, the amount of money it costs. So what kind of right, allocations are we willing to allocate to? protecting the rights of women and their physical safety. Mm. Uh, you know, rounding these guys up when they do this, uh, uh, putting them on a one-way flight or whatever to places where they come from. We have an array of laws, existing laws. Uh, for instance, if the individual who has committed a gruesome rape, even murder here, um, is to face um, some kind of terrible punishment in the country of origin, not for that crime, mm. but for something else, then uh, we should not, Article 8 says we should, we should not um, deport such a person. So it, it gets more complicated than just reaching the commonsensical I, conclusion, well, if you don't want to be here, you don't want to behave like us, then get out. I get, I get that. And there are lots of uh, difficult arguments to be had about what, what is an appropriate measure against people who break the law. But I think if we can all agree that we should apply the law equally, irrespective of who the individual is, then surely we'd be in a much stronger position to begin with. I think you're absolutely right. And then it is, once we have that agreement, how do we give that, how do we implement that? So, which brings me on to another question, because I'm, so much of this discussion is fraught with accusations of Islamophobia. And, and, and uh, as a term, I'm, I, I find it fairly useless, I have to be honest, because it seems to be applied to the kind of idiot who would tear off someone's hijab on the street and, and, and uh, verbally abuse them. Uh, you know, to, and it can similarly be applied to someone who just simply has a legitimate criticism of an aspect of the religion they don't like. Mm -hmm. Now, those two things are poles apart. Mm -hmm. You know, one is a, a thug that we can all agree with. It's appalling behavior. And the other is just someone raising a question, in a, you know, in, yes. in an open way. If you pull someone's hijab, you're committing a, a type of assault yeah. and crime and uh, you're actually infringing on someone's space and uh, that individual has all sorts of you know tools uh, go to the police get an affidavit mm -hmm. uh, get this person um, to be dealt with and rightly so and absolutely rightly so and i think everyone agrees with that it's so appalling and so disgusting everyone agrees with that and in in the countries that we live in there actually are consequences. Yes. You don't have to give it all sorts of wonderful labels like Islamophobia. It, it's a crime. You, you know, if I come and, and start, you know, tugging at your clothes. Uh, I was reading in the newspaper someone who tried to take a picture with Chris Whitty. Yes, yes. Yeah. The video that went viral. Yeah. yeah. So that's the equivalent of tugging at someone's headscarf or... So we have laws in place irrespective of identity or notions yes, of, yes. Of, of, of protected characteristics or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and there are consequences. And also those people are then, you know, just, you know, they do need to learn where the boundaries lie. 
So then, like I said, you can have whatever it is that you want between your ears. Yes. If you believe that Muslims don't belong here, women should not be wearing headscarves. It's if that's what you want to believe, that's between your ears. But the minute you start acting on it, there are consequences, and and that has to be uniform. That has to be. You have to deal with the uh, this person who's. Um, committing yes. that kind of act of prejudice, but also the other one. I, I'm, I'm totally with you on the liberal position insofar yeah. as I think people should be able to think whatever they want. It's, it's how in they, if they infringe on other people's rights. Yes. But what I'm trying to, what I'm struggling with is, the, is this, this neologism, this, um, this word Islamophobia, Islamophobia. Which, which, which we say, which we apply to those kind of people, but we, uh, someone who attacks a, um, an identifiably Muslim woman on the street, and we similar, and, and commentators similarly use it to a feminist writer like Julie Bindle, who just doesn't want working class girls in the north to be raped. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and <laughs> I can't reconcile that. Yeah. Um, I think the Islamophobia term is a manufactured term. It is supposed to make us all feel like what you feel when you hear the word homophobia. Right. Or you hear the word Islamophobia. Sorry, that you hear the word um, racism. Yes. Uh, it implies that there is a minority uh, who are being persecuted for no other reason than the fact that they belong to that mm -hmm. race or gender, in which case Islam is neither a race nor a gender. It's not, it's not, it's just a set of ideas. It's a belief ideas. system, right? It's so a belief system. So if you're, if you're afraid of uh, a belief system, um, then, uh, well, you're afraid of it, and there may be good reasons for that. There, there are very good reasons from recent experience to be afraid of some of the very radical tenets of Islam. So I wouldn't call that Islamophobia. It has nothing to do with phobia. It's actually a rational fear. If you think that someone who takes these things very seriously is, is going to blow you up or is going to engage yes. in some kind of violence. So I think the Islamophobia word is manufactured. Um, but again, it takes us back to this um, trying to make exceptions mm. for uh, exceptions and exemptions yes. for minorities or s certain groups of minorities, but not others. Right. Um, you can claim to be a, a, a member of a Muslim community and say, I'm offended by... You know, there's just a very long list of things that uh, mm -hmm. such people are offended by. And we'll say, we'll try and protect you from that. But then what about the other religious groups? Yes. Well, I mean, there does seem to be a singular uh, focus on, on, on Islam as in a protected group. I, I remember reading um, Chav, the, uh, the editor of Charlie Hebdo, who was killed in the massacre. And he wrote about, he compared the idea of Islamophobia to the idea of communistophobia and the idea yeah. of being, being phobic. Because what that phobic suffix does it, it kind of pathologizes yes. the, the idea as though you, you know not only are you wrong to criticize this aspect of the religion but you're mentally ill to do so it, there's something wrong with you for, for doing it that yes and and it's not just uh, it, it, yes it pathologizes it but also makes you um a mean crude right um xenophobic narrow-minded person who are you to be saying these things? And 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 that's and that's well, nobody wants to be seen that way. So then people uh, just think I'm not going to engage in this debate. And so then you create an atmosphere of silence. You're you're punished. It's a, it's a council culture in its own right. And it was a council culture before the present yeah. day council culture. But how does it work? Because I mean, to go back to what you said earlier about back in 2003, 2004, when you were told, yes. well, they will change if you just give them time. People yes. will change and cultures will change. Well. For any ideology or idea about the world to reform, 
it has to be challenged. And, and, and so therefore, why would they be so afraid of doing it? If that's exactly what they want. I was having those conversations with people like Timothy Gatanash and um, Ian Boruma and just this whole cohort of people who had thought through, well, you know, freedom of speech. There are people who lived with this notion for much longer than the people who are just coming in. So if they're just coming in, of course we are for freedom of speech. Of course, right, you know, we get it. But give these people time. Mm. And... I, if, we, if I were to say uh, to Timothy Garton Ash and Ian Bruma, well, let's go back, let's sit down, let's talk about what have we achieved here. Yes. What would they say now? <laughs> well, I would, say, I would put on the table the things that I was saying back then. You know, you have this, um, first of all, if, if you accord it to this minority, then why would this minority not take it? Mm -hmm. All of the... Of, objections that people on my side were saying, they seem to be coming out. And also, if you say, and this this is back in 2003-04, that particular minority was very much ready to use force to get what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And that bothered me the most. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't like they were coming to the table and saying, "Just give us time," because twenty years from now we're going to think otherwise about things. Yeah. They were saying, "If you draw a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad, you will be beheaded." And it was a minority. We have to. Emphasize it was a minority that. of a minority. But you don't need many to enact that and for exactly. it to have a threat it, to have an effect. Exactly. And these older, mature men were saying. It's just, it's time. It will take time. People get passionate about these things, but it will be over before you know it. Don't provoke them. But it doesn't, it doesn't just take time. It also takes challenging. It but it's not only that. One of the things that I was very much worried about was you are opening a can of worms because mm. you're going to say, we're going to let this minority of minorities get away with it, and then others will see an opportunity to say, but wait a second, I can do that too. I can also threaten to use force yes. to get what I want. Or, in this case, what we're seeing recently is to cancel people yes. and character assassinate them. Uh, I can get away with all of this. If they're getting away with it, so can I. Yes. And why not? You can have all of it. Society will fall into different groups of people who will, see, who will rightfully think, if you can have it, why can't I? And that strikes me as that's the problem that's getting worse and worse. I mean, we had this week in Parliament, um, yeah. uh, Nashar talking about... Pro uh, the offence and hurt and emotional harm yeah. that cartoons of Muhammad cause, exactly. right? Exactly. And if and your emotions, your feelings, your sentiments, um, your preoccupations deem us, the rest of society, to indulge it, why not someone else's feelings? And yes. then, it's, then it's all about feelings, and now you, I just leave the rest to your imagination. Well, that's impossible mm. to legislate, surely, because <laughs> everyone has different feelings about different things and... How could you even begin with we this? Can. And yeah. this is, I think, why modernity, Western civilization, it was like, we are going to deal with emotions and we're going to, at the center of the way we do things, we're going to place reason. Yes. Not that, that's not a denial of emotion. It's not um, a subjugation of emotion. It is everybody's emotion will have equal rights yes. and there'll be no, we are not going to favor this group over that group and so on. And, and then we'll try and translate that into law, a daunting, 
daunting effort, but it has happened for a time. Yes, and for a time it was successful. In your country, Britain has started that effort, and it's an ongoing thing. And in the U.S., up to a point, I think we got somewhere. But now here we come. The emotions are coming out at us again. So my feelings, the way I feel, my right, the way I see my truth, this, that, and the other. And yeah, if, if you do that, then it is subjectivity then prevails over objectivity, and then... Well, society crumbles. I mean, I, yeah. I can't see how it works because, I mean, I get it. I understand that if, if someone attacks my most cherished beliefs, yeah. I get that it hurts. Yeah. I get that it's not comfortable. But how can I possibly expect the law to protect me from that? I mean, you know, and then you get these words thrown about. I mean, they'll say, well, you, you've drawn a, a cartoon mocking our religion. Therefore, we're going to label you Islamophobic, pathologize you, call you this thing. Maybe they just don't think your God exists. Maybe they think your God is silly. And maybe that's okay. You know, that's... But, uh, but the thing is, the reality we were living in 2003 and, and was for... Christians mm. and uh, Jews and other people who attach, you know, Western religions, um, they had come to terms with that. Whatever yes. your cherished belief was, that was going to be mocked. I asked the rhetorical question, why is there no life of Muhammad when there's a life of Brian? And I was told, behind closed doors, nobody was going to put their name to this. Yes. Um, the Muslims are not that far. In other words, they're not culturally or religiously mature enough to get to a point to allow the mockers to mock. It's yeah. not that the people who care about Jesus Christ think, oh, the life of Brian is great. Yeah. They don't. They're offended. No, they're deeply offended. They're it. deeply offended, but they've learned to look away. And that ability to look away and let things be yeah. is a sign of maturity. And behind closed doors, and this is what the racism of law expectations is about, is with those Muslims, they're just not there yet. The, that's really uh, what it boils down that's to. That's a really interesting point as far as the, is it this expectation that Muslims are, are likely to react violently if they're upset. That's a very patronizing Yeah, because the Christians used to do that in the past. They're over it now. Right. They're old enough, they're mature enough, they're adults. The expectation that a Muslim who expects to be offended. Yes. So uh, the assumption is if you're a Muslim, a drawing of the Prophet Muhammad, whether it's flattering or not, is going to offend you. Can you look away? Well, it's not necessarily true that, that all Muslims would be offended. Well, first of all, it's not true. Yeah. That's, that's, again, why I think it's a form of racism and it's a form of in itself, if you want to pursue the notion of Islamophobia. Yes. <laughs> it is actually a form of phobia. First of all, it's not true. Mm -hmm. it, it, it applies to a minority. Yes. But the assumption is they can't deal with it. The Christians can, the Jews can, maybe the Buddhists and the Sikh can. Yes. But the Muslims, they can't deal with it. They can, they're just going to erupt in a violent rage, so let's not... Well, we saw that them. In, Let's, we're not going to make a life of Muhammad. Did you see the story about Batley Grammar School in, in the UK uh, yes, recently? Did, yeah. And similarly with the, the, the anger from the protesters outside about the, the teacher who had shown the cartoon of Muhammad. And the assumption in the media that, the, okay, those people represent what it is to be Muslim in the UK. That's not true at all. It's absolutely not true. And I think there are a lot of Muslims who look at this and they just cringe. Yeah. They look at these men with the beards who are foaming at the mouth and who just make a spectacle of themselves yes. and who say they speak for Islam and they cringe and they're embarrassed. And at the same time, obviously, they don't want to encourage drawings of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. 
but they, they, they stay silent. These are the people who have been cancelled into silence by the extreme, extreme, extreme minority who say that they speak for their religion. Do you, do you so in that sense, I think the best way would be to, uh, to just expose this minority forming at the mouth for exactly what they are. And do you think the media is complicit in a sense that, you know, if you're going to have a discussion about this, don't invite the, the imam who's angry uh, and is, is screaming about um, how people must be put to death. Don't invite that person because that's not representative of... Well, of... they invite themselves because they are the okay. ones who then go picketing. They are the ones who go shouting and demonstrating. They threatened the teacher, I believe. They threatened the headmaster. They did. He went into the, yeah. yeah, the headmaster had to apologise and all sorts of things. And so it's that bit. It's the apologising. It is the why should you apologise? Why not say to these individuals, you do not represent the wider We don't recognise you as representing anyone other than yourselves. Yes. You're not impressed by the way you want to do things. Um, please step aside. And if you refuse to do that, uh, there'll be, you know, we'll just call the police or, you know, you'll have to deal with the law. Um, the, the headmaster should not have apologised. The school teacher should not have gone into hiding. And, and I think it's these things that empower them. So again, we come back to this point of convergence. We can all agree that the people who are calling for the death of a school teacher or anything like that are a tiny minority, yeah. certainly not representative of Muslim people. Most Muslim people in this country would find that appalling. So we can all agree yes. with that. But then we come back to the problem of the, the, the complicity with that minority. Is that too many people are saying that they've got a point? Too well, many I think if we take this example to then the next yes. step, which is, uh, well, teacher had to go into hiding because in France, under similar conditions, a teacher was beheaded. This is Samuel Paty. Samuel Paty. Yes. And so this is real, right? It's real, exactly. and it only takes a One few. of those individuals will at some point uh, try and plot the murder of a teacher, and we don't want that to happen. So for that then, I think, is a key issue for the government of the day, because yes. that the government, it's the government's job to protect citizens from other citizens, right, on a domestic level, and so, they are the ones who should make sure that that crime doesn't take place. But the solution to that isn't to blame the victim and say, oh, actually, you know, you shouldn't offend people, therefore. No. The solution surely is to say, actually, you know, if you're going to, if, if this minority group or tiny group of people are going to threaten someone's life for showing a cartoon, then we all show the cartoon. You know, it, uh, that, is, that is how I would do it, because yes. obviously you get into the cost perspective, which is uh, well, what is the how is the government going to protect this one right. individual from who knows where uh, the threat might come from, in which case, and I've been saying this from the time, I was, you know, threats against me started and others, Yes. then let's all do it, let's all say it so that you, you find protection in, in numbers. You spread the risk. You spread the risk. Who are they going to kill next? Yes. And when you do it that way, the plotting that they... It, it's, it, it's a kind of threat, you know. ISIS, when they were in their heyday, were not a threat to one or two individuals. They were mm -hmm. a threat to all of us. And there were all sorts of measures that we were taking. But then, back then, it was, okay... Uh, this is the threat. So we're all going uh, to go about our lives. And, uh, you know, if someone uh, is, if an individual is targeted, then we all say we are all, all that individual. That would be a cheaper, more balanced way of doing it. And obviously we protect 
said individual. Yes. That, that's... It, it is so difficult. I mean, during the Charlie Hebdo affair, I, I, I understand why uh, an employer of a media outlet wouldn't want to show the cartoon because it puts his employees or her employees at, at serious risk. It's not yeah. a... It's not a f but then by the same token, had all of the media outlets shown the image, which was, let's face it, newsworthy, mm -hmm. it was core yeah. to the relevance of the story, then, as you say, that would have spread the risk and that's one way of dealing with it. But, but how you do that when there's the fear of death in the air is difficult. I think we've done it with different groups. We've done it with all sorts of organized crime. I think we've done it actually with white supremacists because uh, skinheads go around the play all over the place threatening people. And, yeah. uh, it, it, uh, that threat has been understood and mitigated, but it's been made very clear to that particular group. Sorry, regardless of what you do, you're not going to go, you won't get away with it, the mafia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, various um, um, types of people who engage in organized crime, whether it's for ideological reasons or for uh, monetary reasons, open societies deal yes. with this all the time. And we have to have a discussion about it. We, we have, have to, to have, it. yeah. It, I think where we go wrong is where we give one small group an exception on grounds of religion, where we go so far as what I've been reading about in Scotland, where they're actually going to uh, bring in so-called hate laws, yes. which is just uh, uh, bringing back blasphemy laws. It's just blasphemy laws with a different name, but then exclusively only for Muslims. Yes, this is something <laughs> the SNP are pushing, are pushing yeah. forward. So just to, um, I just want to bring this to a close, because I, I could talk to you for hours about this. I think it's fascinating. And I think your book does a, a really great service in opening up this debate. And I do hope that everyone reads it. I think it's very important, particularly uh, those who are trying to just wish away this problem. And, and, and you know, and I understand why they want to, yeah. you know. But I think it's it has to be confronted. And I think I just want to address one one point in your book that you 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 raise, which is that you 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 accuse governments of failing refugees ultimately because you're saying that their multicultural policies effectively mean that the refugees cannot flourish in European society and are almost destined to hold fast to the, 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 those cultural norms that we, we do not accept. Mm -hmm. So what can be done? What, what do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we make these changes that you are saying are so needed? Let's start with the assumption, what is it that you want refugees to do when they're here? Which is, do you accept them and include them into every aspect of life? Or do you keep them in their own little island and is the expectation that one day they'll go back to their country and culture of origin. And so really it's just like potted plants. You mm -hmm. know, you put a plant in a container and you know after a while you can take the container and take it back. Mm -hmm. Or are we just going to, are they going to be a part of us? And if the assumption is, and I am a proponent of total assimilation, let them be a part of our society, a part of everything we do, then include them in everything, including our values, our norms, our customs, the way we do things, written and unwritten. Actually, that's also the best path towards success for them. Yes. And so that, my answer lies in, in how do we explore ways of doing that? And that then means reordering our assumptions and the way we look at refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants. Are they people whom we think are gonna be here temporarily or do we want them among us forever? And if the, if the latter is the case, then assimilation is the path. And indeed, having the courage to assert that some values are better than other values. Absolutely, yes. That's why they're here. Yes. You see, people are leaving at the risk of losing their lives. South Asia, 
Africa, um, the Middle East, and this is, I, I say this in the book, why they're here because they want to improve their lives. Yes. And uh, life, you, you, you get to live longer in peace and mm, hopefully in prosperity. Mm-hmm. If you come here, then if you stayed in Syria or Afghanistan or Somalia or any of those places. So since you made your way here, yes, you're welcome in other to words, everything. Give, give, give these people what they want, what yes, they've come for. what they've come for. And they've voted with their feet for the values that we have here and for the civilization that we have here. And if these men come all raw and crude and uncivilized, then let's civilize them and refine them and introduce them to the promises of being um, friendly to women. Ian Hersley, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fascinating discussion. Like I say, I wish we could do it. Maybe we can do it again sometime. It would be great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Wonderful talking to you. And please do buy Ian's new book, Pray, Immigration, Islam and the Erosion of Women's Rights. It's a very important piece of work and I would highly recommend it. Thank you very much.